Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. My guest today on the show is Tim Stock. Tim is the co-founder of Scenario DNA, a foresight consultancy, and teaches trend analysis and design thinking at Parsons School of Design. You know, me and Tim go back quite a ways, and he's been actually a guest on the deep dive before. Um, he was, I think, either my second or third guest in the annals of doing the show, and was also on my previous show. Um, two Doughboys in a podcast. So we've done this recording thing before, and it's always a pleasure for us to kind of take the conversations that we have offline, either email or text or DM or however we, we are communicating and bring them to actually a, a larger audience. So I want to thank you for being on the deep dive with me. It's great to be here again. You know, we're kind of going back and forth on on the things we wanted to to talk about. And you mentioned and, and kind of alluded to this idea of of subcultures. And I, and I know you've been doing some work on that just as a grouping. And so I want to give you the opportunity to kind of, let's start there, right? Like kind of frame to us, the listeners, like what have you been thinking about or researching as it pertains to subculture and are subcultures even possible given the, the kind of market conditions that we're living in? Yeah, I think it's a tough question about subcultures right now because I think in many ways they're harder to spot because much of what we used to understand as the relationship between culture and subculture was kind of like, you know, light and dark. It was kind of easier to sort of see. But so much of subculture has become uh, sort of absorbed by the prevailing culture so quickly, it becomes harder to see the ways in which it's actually working. I mean, the key to subculture, though, is that it's inherently human. And so subculture is sort of the thing I always, when speaking with my clients, is talking about, which distinguishes us from machines, really. I mean, it's it's this idea that, you know, it's an irrational, seeming irrational response to a prevailing way things are being done, but it's actually a way of correcting a lot of what the prevailing culture is doing. So there's always a subculture working in, um, but it's, you know, but it was easier to spot those subcultures before, you know, I look at it as, as an example I mean, more people sort of generally would understand is the evolution of, of hip hop. Um, in American culture. And, you know, hip hop is essentially really sort of, ha you know, if you tie it back to the traditions of jazz as a subculture in American culture, it plays that role of correcting and speaking to things that aren't working. But there's a point of which hip hop actually becomes marketing. And I always sort of, you know, the, that I think that it's been decided that 1995 is like kind of the point of which hip, hip hop, it wasn't dead, but it had become so marketed that it was harder to distinguish what it was in its original form. It was the way in which the producer had taken over, the record company had taken over and co-opted it. So it's essential to how we, how we are as human beings, but we just have to get better at spotting it. Crisis is a really great opportunity to spot subcultures, but as I said, it's, it's harder to spot them today. And, you know, what, what do you think it is that contributes to that difficulty of spotting a subculture or, or really a subculture surviving before its absorption into the mainstream. And, and I feel like hip hop is a is a good example of that, not just because I, I traffic in hip hop so much, but I feel like it's and like I don't I'm not really sure when the the point where hip hop became the prevailing culture was. Right. Like I'm, I'm sure mm -hmm. people who write about music professionally will have a year. Right. Like you cited a like a 1995 is kind of a, a year. Right. And when I reflect back on it, it felt like it was something for a very long time 
even when it was popular, that still wasn't mainstream. And there was like mm-hmm. a real happiness with that, right? Like there was, mm-hmm. it, it was kind of yeah. like a mix of <laughs> a back and forth where, and, and this is in, another interesting piece of subculture. And I'm, I'm sure there's going to be a question in here somewhere, but like kind of bear with me that, <laughs> you know, when I was growing up and, and I loved hip hop so much and I felt it was so important and so vital, I wanted it to be recognized as much as I didn't want it to be consumed, yeah. right? Yes. And so I want to leave that out there to kind of like walk through like why you think some of that exists or why it's harder to to make that sort of distinguishing points as it might have been in the past. It, you know, I'll sort of jump in and say that, I mean, the, you know, subculture is a way of correcting, you know, it's sort of like if you were to, you know, sort of take the sort of Jungian idea of it, it's sort of, it's the way in which we kind of regain our wholeness. It's like, you know, those subcultures are telling us something to, to sort of reconnect. Um, the problem is, is that it suffers from its popularity. So that language comes in and it corrects those those aspects of what's happening, but it becomes essentially marketed. It becomes it the you know the idea of of knowing about it is less important than than actually having to earn a relationship with it. So one way to understand subcultures that is you know, and it also helps to understand why they're harder to to, to sort of spot today, is that it used to be that subcultures were really defined by living in the physical world. And so if you look back to kind of the early um, club scene, as an example, in New York City and in London, is that it fed a lot of other kinds of creativity. It fed fashion. It fed, it wasn't just music. It was feeding a lot of other kinds of forms. It was tied in with the art world of people like Basquiat and so forth like that. But it required you to actually go and do something. You actually had to go and find these places. You actually had to earn, if you were to go to a nightclub back in the early 80s in in New York City, is that the doormen at those nightclubs didn't let people in because they were famous. It wasn't that. It was based on how interesting you were, which is a very abstract concept. So it became, you had a lot of people making clothes and and sort of developing certain styles. And it was also being known for that you were doing something very interesting got you entry into that. Today, entry is as easy as a click on the computer. And, you know, you have a lot of people who sort of know, um, and you talk about hip hop, you know, they know hip hop, but they don't have to experience any of it. They can live sort of blissfully separated from actually where it is and what it's doing. And so, you know, the moment that I'm citing of 1995 is actually the, I mean, you know, there are many, you know, I'm not a music historian, but it was the Puff Daddy Shook Knight moment. And it was this kind of idea that Puff Daddy was this sort of the moment of marketing out what had become very, had been living as this subculture at that moment. And Suge Knight was basically sort of making a point back then of saying, I'll come to my label and I won't have producers in the videos. You know, it won't be all the people from the record company and so forth. It's not about the money that's flowing to it. It's actually about the creativity that's flowing to it. I don't, you know, whether, you know, sort of analysis of Suge Knight as a player in the hip hop world is another topic but it is the fundamental issue that subculture is reconnecting that creativity and that takes me back to what i said earlier which is what is essentially human you know so subcultures are that moment of inception of of a create a re a sort of a um developing a new language that seeks to resolve language that has become diluted and is not working anymore you know, and so you can always see that it's just harder to see now because the relationship to, between physical and digital, I would say that we have now what is a crypto reality, not even a virtual reality. You know, it doesn't require any kind of, it can live under its own rules and it isn't measured by, by any one source anymore. And, and we're going to, we're going to be talking a little bit about some of those things that you, that you branched off to. I, I want to stick 
to this theme for a little while longer, because I think folks listening to the conversation could argue or maybe offer that, you know, some of these things are good, right? Like it doesn't require someone to be in Brooklyn or in LA or in Atlanta or Miami, you know, just kind of naming some of the big hubs of hip hop, Philadelphia, in around the time that you cited in order to embrace it. And and one of the things that I think is so powerful about hip hop is how global it is. Even if the music is different, even if the language is different, hip hop has become, even with all the challenges of hip hop, you know, as I'm someone who's critical of, of a lot of a lot of hip hop, but I'm critical mm-hmm. of everything, even with those challenges, to many people around the world, like every time I, I travel, like folks that are in the hip hop, they understand it from a perspective that maybe I was dealing with when I was 16. Right. So they're they're in a moment of love and hip hop as a moment of rebellion, as a moment of protest, as it informs mm-hmm. their politics, even if some of the music in its most commercial sense has moved away from those messages. Right. So there is something exciting about this notion that like the music that I had to explain to people at one point is now I would classify as the dominant global cultural music and expression Mm -hmm. that there is. So are some of these elements good or is there something else going on here that doesn't allow for the fullest expression of the subculture? I think it suffers, as I said, I mean, it suffers from its success to some degree, but that success doesn't, you know, it also suffers from laziness. I mean, you could use that success to be able to cultivate the creativity of hip hop, but the allure of the near term and, you know, what people will, will buy and consume ends up feeding kind of an echo chamber of music that is of this moment and that you know that's the problem that you get is that you don't get i mean it, it's how when music moved to songs and away from albums is that the whole idea of music changed because you would buy an album before and it would have a bunch of the uh, you know many bands would put a bunch of uh you know a few songs spattered in there that were kind of hard to understand and you had to listen to them, or you at least had to know that if you weren't listening to them, maybe you there was something wrong with you that you weren't understanding this band fully. We don't have to do that anymore. We can completely live only in this in the top hit song that is put out, and that creates this sort of a bubble. So that is a problem, but it's also more of a challenge to those that are are in the world of creating music to be able to go back and say. How am I investing back in? Am I investing on the top surface or am I, you know, and just sort of feeding on sort of this constant churn of popularity or am I actually trying to get the genre to go in directions that it it hasn't gone before? I mean, the other part of this important about hip hop is go back to what its roots are and it's about neighborhoods. So the question is, is it's great that it goes global, but when it goes global, what are you doing for my my hood. What are you doing? This music genre comes out of reclaiming space in what is sort of failed urban development from the 1960s to 1970s. And you don't get, you sort of get it becoming kind of a slogan or a tagline. And it doesn't go back to any really solving kind of what was the inception of why it existed in the first place. It didn't exist for entertainment. It existed as a way of bringing people together to reclaim where they lived because their identity and where they lived wasn't seen and wasn't as important. That part of it, I think we need to think more about in terms of how do you feed back creativity? I would say that would be my positive future outlook, but I think we need to get better. And a lot has been you know, hurt by how easy it is to commercialize. I would say many artists today, and this goes to another conversation I think we'll have a little little later, is that they have to live in kind of this keeping true to their art, 
while also commercializing because they know that they can make money to be able to then feed to the art. But that's like, you know, a schizoid kind of like life to live in is that you're constantly trying to develop this sort of commercialism, but also to feed back to doing other projects that are actually more sort of, you know, sort of less uneasily understood. So it's the challenge today. And as you were kind of going through that, one of the things that really I thought about was also this notion of joy is in there that as as much as we love like sort of the grainy footage from the 70s and 80s of kind of the, you know, hip hop block party, it wasn't even mm. called hip hop back then, but it was just sort of like a block party or a street party that kind of birthed the music that we know of as hip hop. In that reclamation of space, there's a lot of joy in that, right? Like there's an idea of, you know, like like I often say, culture comes from the margins, right? And is these people taking what they had, you know, these artists, these kind of innovators, these pioneers, and, you know, rigging the system, right? You're kind of plugging in your turntables into electrical mm-hmm. grids that, you know, you you didn't really have ex- access to. And I think that sort of ingenuity and creativity there's a lot of joy in that reclamation that often isn't as celebrated as part Mm -hmm. of the story. Right. And I I would love to, as we sort of think back to those spaces kind of center that even with the poverty and the sort of neglect that we described that you described in the sixties and seventies, that kind of led to these undersourced communities and neighborhoods. Now we, we fast forward 40 years And those beginnings is this dominant cultural force that exists everywhere, like it's transcended music. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that, I mean, the the other part I would add to that, though, is that, you know, and you could Google kind of like, you know, hip hop is dead. I mean, and you get a lot of people waxing poetic about it. I don't believe in things being ever dead. They just kind of change. But the question is, is when you hear people making statements like that, the question is, is, where else do you find new inception points? And the key is, is I guess what it is, is it's harder to find it in, in American culture today than it is to find it in far more sort of socioeconomic challenged parts of the world. And you see hip hop actually kind of being sort of integrating in, being sort of borrowed and then sort of developing new forms within those particular places. And so the question is, is the conditions and you know how you use technology and how you use the context of your story and i think that the other part that's kind of interesting is that the global aspect that's really exciting right now is you see far more hybridizing of styles so like you know a fast changing and globally hybridized so people are influenced it's like you know if you look at it from a te- you know, on you know, looking at television, it's like young Mexican uh, males, uh, you know, people, uh, young males in Mexico are watching South Korean soap operas and sort of like what that means sort of culturally. Like we're consuming a lot of things. We're referring to a lot, a lot of stuff. The question is, are we referring to it towards something that really is, has purpose and matters and like then can be consumed and actually can cause some change and sort of like a positive effect in the broader culture? And I think that that sort of adaptation is really interesting because I think people have like so much at their fingertips, right? And that becomes like the overwhelming challenge is all of this stuff is coming at you so quickly, so rapidly. How do you absorb it all in in a way that is coherent, right? And so when you you mentioned about music and and sort of focusing on like the what's popular and sort of regurgitating that in order to ha- keep the sort of paradox of success going and it and it made me think so much about like having a a tape or a record or a CD you know any sort of like kind of analog technology where you had to you know skip a track right like if you didn't want to listen to a particular piece of music your only choice was to kind of fast forward the tape, hit skip on the CD, but it still mm-hmm. existed. And, yeah. and to your point, you knew why you were skipping it. Maybe it was, you know, sonically didn't really agree with you or it was a skit or something that made you say, mm-hmm. I don't want to go in this direction. Right. Mm-hmm. But I, I know 
for my musical journey, sometimes those tracks later became my favorite tracks, right? Like I always reference that sometimes you're just not ready for the artist or the music. Yeah, and even, I mean, like, imagine, like, you've been in this situation as you suddenly happen to have a conversation with somebody and the album, that album or artist comes up and they mention that track that is this under, you know, sort of under uh, consumed track. And, and suddenly you believe you understand each other in a way because you're actually seeing something that is much, you're seeing something that everybody else isn't talking about and you're working through this sort of subtext to what is that artist is actually doing. Those conversations are harder today because, you know, what is popular is so much easier to share. But it reminds us, it reminds us though that like the key to any sort of cultural kind of sort of development is it's a social phenomenon. So we must be aware of that social phenomenon. And there is elements of of this stuff that is discoverable, right? In the sense that we're seeing at least on on via TikTok and you know other sort of social media that involves like video and sharing, you know we're seeing music that's older music, right? Like music fifty years ago, right? If not yeah. longer, that is kind of being discovered again by younger people for whatever reason. I mean, obviously you had like more the Fleetwood Mac thing, which kind of crossed over, kind of big and and became part of like a lot of branding and commercials, but. You know, I think about a song by Matthew Wilder, like Break My Stride, right? Like, I think mm-hmm. that's the type of song that from the time it came out, it was never like a hit, hit record like that. I never, I don't think it ever was like a number one song or anything like that, but it's sort of a very popular cult hit that seemed to also be played from my recollection, not just, even though he was a, a white singer, it was played a lot on black music. Like a lot of black radio stations played it. You know, Puffy sampled it with his first big song with Maze. It's sort of been a song that's been around ever since I heard it. And yep. it's got to be 30 plus years, right? Where now yeah. younger folks are discovering this song. Like I think about a year ago, this was like one of these breakout, yeah. new breakout songs via TikTok videos, right? So I'm curious, yeah. like, how do you factor in that discoverable nature of how the technology can kind of drive us from subculture to culture. Yeah. I mean, your line of conversation there is really fascinating because it's, you know, when you think about that idea of discovery, it's what musicians go through all the time and that they're finding certain songs or certain artists and appreciating them and it's creating influence on the way in which they write. And I mean, one of the things that would surprise a lot of people is the type of artists that influence some of the bands that you actually know is that it doesn't, I remember I'm forgetting the band from the nineties, which I'm totally embarrassed by, but that talked about the brilliance of songwriting by the carpenters. And it was sort of like, you know, here you had a, you know, the sort of the rise of grunge and referencing the songwriting that was in particular carpenters songs and so forth. And it's like that appreciation is, you know, if you were to say a positive idea of bringing subcultures in is getting people more broadly to participate in that and to participate in discovery. But the question is, is how do you do it? It has to sort of work as a social phenomenon and the nature of the way in which social technologies work is to actually to dull that blade and to kind of unsharpen the knife as it were, because it ends up getting kind of, you know, it get we end up sort of leaning towards what is easy, even though we start off like, this is interesting, I want this. So it needs to be constantly cultivated to actually work. And, you know, you woven this in a little bit, but you started off talking about how much of this is so human. And, Mm. you know, I think oftentimes that's such a, it can sound to someone like kind of a throwaway line, right? Like, oh, of course it's human, like we're humans, right? But I think there's a lot of, that word is heavily loaded. And I think it's Mm. very important because our, our world is consistently pulling us away from the type of connectivity that that you're highlighting. And the mm. connectivity is through the medium itself or through 
the financialization of it, meaning the money of it. And I think that gives us a chance to kind of go into NFTs, which is another thing I wanted to, to talk to you about because it's been, it's everywhere now, right? Like it went from sprinkles here and there to, I, I would say in the maybe two, three weeks since we've been planning to have this conversation, you know, if I do a Google search on the New York Times, I think with no exaggeration, over the past two weeks, the New York Times has published at least one article about something going on in the NFT space, right? Mm-hmm. And, and for those who, who might not be that familiar with the acronym, it's non-fundable, non-fungible tokens, NFTs, and it's asset as attached to blockchain. And I'm doing the most simple explanation, which might be reflected of how I feel about things like this, right? <laughs> so I, I want to, before I editorialize, I want to give you a chance to, you know, just broad strokes, what are your thoughts about this as a new medium, particularly in the art world? Well, I mean, it's interesting because it's one of those things in your description. It's sort of, it's interesting because you will, along with everybody else, describing and defining what NFTs are, end up kind of twisting yourself into a pretzel because it's one of those things that it really doesn't have anything to do with human beings. It has a lot to do with sort of the technology that's available. It's sort of like describing fintech in the early days. And fintech is one of those kinds of things that it gets people really excited, but it's only meaningful when it actually does something and how people go about doing something or transacting in some way. But for me to sort of when I first started reading a lot of these articles, the first thing that hits me is to help myself to kind of, you know, ground myself and position myself in understanding it is it reminds me a lot of what was happening in the art market in the 80s. And so it takes me back to the time of which, you know, the selling and marketing of art took over actually the artist. And, you know, you look at kind of the rise of, you know, sort of the popularity of artists like Basquiat and Jeff Koons, and even ultimately to an artist by the name of Mark Gustabi, which is almost sort of the peak of this kind of like marketing as the art. I mean, Gustabi would actually go around and actually, you know, he would be interested in the transaction and he wouldn't even paintings. It was almost like the process itself. It was almost this buyer is more the art than it is the actual art itself. And so you kind of look at what's happening right now and it's this, you know, it's again, it's this crisis in in meaning and value because it's almost the ability to sell things. But the question is, do they have any value and who defines that value? And when we look at the art market specifically, the definition of value, I mean, talk to artists, then talk to galleries, talk to critics. All of these are stakeholders that define kind of how you value a piece of artwork. NFT kind of completely comes in and bulldozes all of that. And so it kind of takes away any of those kind of players. I mean, one of the challenges for auction houses is that you put a value on something that's placed to auction and you can kind of start, you can kind of know what the starting bid might be. But with what's happening with NFTs, it's completely abstract. I mean, it's what I would, going back to the term that I used before, is it's this crypto reality. It's really not based upon, it doesn't have to be based upon anything that is before or anything. It's just based upon the fact that I say it has value, other people are buying it, and therefore you create this kind of, this sort of, this, uh, you know, this cascade, as it were, towards that having the value it does. So it's a problem and it's a potential kind I mean, it's a reality. It's just the way it is. You know, if you can't sort of argue the fact that I'm going to live in a world without NFTs, they exist. The question is, is if I'm an artist, how do you make sense of how that's actually going to impact how you work and, you know, how you sell your work? That's the question. You know, I get um, <laughs> my boys who, who, who might be listening to this episode at one point, they're always critiquing me for being like a curmudgeon. So they're always like, oh, Phil's just such a curmudgeon when it comes to like <laughs> looking at the world, which I can't really disagree with them. And I love them for being able to like capture my essence in such a perfect word like curmudgeon. But, you know, I just look at this stuff and I know we, we talk about it and we're discussing it in, in a way that 
is really to me providing more meaning than it's worth. Like, you know, I'm really, mm-hmm. I'm really landing on the space of like, wow, this is just such incredible amounts of bullshit, mm-hmm. which I respect the hustle, right? Like if, if some dummy is going to go out there and spend $69 million on a bunch of gifts, then yeah. go for it. Right. And I think to a certain extent, I twist myself in in a pretzel like you described to to describe it because it's not even worth me taking the time to truly understand. I find it so <laughs> useless in every way and such an incredible waste of uh-huh. of everything, right? Like I feel like, and again, this is me completely editorializing. I think if yeah. if people didn't view it as a way of making money and kind of trading this idea, this asset, I don't think anybody would do this. I don't think any kid like picks up their first pencil thinking that this is where they're going to end up. Right. And there's, I don't know, there's just something I know I'm going to sound like, oh, you just don't get it, Phil. I'm going to get lots of people writing me and sending me DMs. Oh, you just don't understand the revolution. It's it's a total different thing. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm cool with that. (laughs) <laughs> like I'm but, completely comfortable but you not have understanding to, it. But you have to understand, I mean, it, the question is, is who you're speaking to who's getting too excited about it. And this is the problem is that it's which stakeholders define the future of anything. And we were talking about music before, and it was the problem of record labels defining the future of artists, musicians. I mean, to be a musician uh, working with a label and I had a little bit of experience of that in my earlier days, is it's crap. I mean, it is just, they basically, they lend you money and they basically put, you know, it's like, it is it is really a system to kind of churn out. And what they do is they promote and market. Going back to art, it's similarly sort of like the ability to make tons and tons of money on something. Realize, I don't care about, those people talking about that. I care about the artist and saying, how am I going to actually make this work? What you find is, it's kind of interesting, some new phenomenon is artists that are sort of creating kind of like a, I was mentioning this before, this sort of schizoid personality where they're using NFTs to basically offset the, to sort of create money to fund other things that they do. And I don't necessarily believe that ends well because realize this isn't anything new. I mean, that's why I say study the art market in the 1980s, this was happening. And you would find how much the Gordon Geckos of the world who were suddenly wash in in deregulated money from the 80s markets uh, suddenly wanted to have something to spend their money on. And they usually, and this was really bad, I spent a little time working in the New York City art gallery market in in the late 80s, is give me something that's really big and has red in it. You know, and it's sort of like, it was sort of, it came down to sort of a lot of stupid buying, but it had that value because other rich people saw that rich person buying it and therefore you created this sort of echo chamber of value. At some point, Kastabi is an example of it, it sort of, you know, it deflates. It like, you know, suddenly people go, oh, I don't buy it anymore. I don't buy that reality anymore. And, and it deflates. There are actual people who get hurt in that process. And you have to sort of think like, what we really care about is the art. We shouldn't care about NFTs. So, we're getting lost when we start talking about NFTs. We should be saying the reason NFTs are getting a lot of conversation is that people are searching for things that have value that other people don't have, something that is something to tell other people about. And you know, we have to study that idea of value, I think, is what it is. And there's scarcity tied to that. Like there's the notion as a collector. You know, because Damien Hurst did the same thing, right? Like hedge fund market was exploding in the 2000s and you you saw incredible amounts of money flooding into the art world with people like, you know, most popularly Damien Hurst, you know, mm-hmm. because hedge fund managers just had a shit ton of money and mm-hmm. and and the ability to just spend it on things, right? It's like yeah. the Russian oligarch buying a Premier League yeah. team, right? Or or 
whoever else might might want to do that. And you know, as we were talking, I just kind of jotted down this question, which is, I think, connected to this larger phenomenon that you're talking about of who creates value, who's who is setting markets and expectations, what artists are need to do or others, because you know a lot of musicians, like I saw Kings of Leon is releasing an album that's going to live as an NFT. And I'm like, what are you doing? Right. But <laughs> is there too much money? Right. Like, I know that's going to sound like a really odd question, but like, have we really reached this point? Understanding that to me, money is imaginary. So just keeping that in mind, running in the back mm-hmm. of your head, even with it being an imaginary construct, do we have too much of it? Where it just feels like there's so much money chasing just really bad ideas. And in times (laughs) of such incredible need, it feels extra gross. Well, well, I I would, you know, again, it's like it's, you know, to understand kind of what's going on culturally, you know, history is really is really helpful. And if you look back at that market in the 80s, it's a sort of tension between old money and new money. And really, in terms of how it was changing, then how the actual art market would perform and sort of and, you know, what the dynamics of that art market would be. And so that idea of, you know, there was a lot of snobbery about new people who simply had tons of money to spend buying things that they didn't understand. Realize, though, that that market ended up cycling where, you know, if you're a very wealthy person and you you have just this big painting that you just bought because it's big and it looks sort of, you know, impressive because it's very large, suddenly people come into your home and go, so tell me about this painting. That's what people are really after, is they're trying to buy. It's interesting talking to people who have made a lot of money. I'm talking about people who become billionaires very quickly, is that they go into kind of a crisis of, I'm important, I'm smart, I have other aspects to me. I used to work for a billionaire uh, in England, uh, Felix Dennis, who started Maxim Magazine, and he became a poet. And he was obsessed. He wanted to be known more as a poet, not as a publisher, really. And that's sort of the story. It's the journey of having money and where you spend it, because that is ultimately the, it's really how you're measured. You start, you know, and again, it goes to that thing. What is human? You're sort of saying, can I own this? Can I talk about it? Can I tell other people about it? And it's that kind of tension. And NFTs just make this move much, much faster is what I'm seeing right now. And I do see a certain burnout, but I noticed that there was an example of an artist that was putting up art on the traditional, uh, was putting up traditional pieces and at the same time doing NFTs. So you're going to get kind of interesting kind of hybridization that might start happening. Yeah, it, it, it feels like, and these are these are some things that might be somewhat loosely correlated, but I see it, I see the language that is being used to talk about these things, right? It's about empowerment, you know, those who wouldn't have a voice can now have a voice. It's, you know, we're taking the power of what we're creating out of the hands of systems and putting them in the hands of creators. It almost, and if someone might think this is kind of a nebulous connection, but it's very much like Substack, right? Mm-hmm. Or Patreon or OnlyFans, mm-hmm. right? Like these. Oh, yes, very much so. These notions that we are going to disintermediate the ones who are the gatekeepers and yeah. we are going to create something through all of these disconnected pieces. Yeah. And monetize it right like there it always ends there is with monetization right yeah there there is a very i mean you touched upon something i think is really important which is kind of a i think it's it's a moment it's an inflection point is that you know the concern i have is that i see a certain cynicism in the sort of generation that is kind of coming of age right now in terms of how these markets work and you know essentially looking at there's a sort of a cynical idea that everything is to, you mentioned only fans you mentioned it's like everything is for sale therefore you kind of create this kind of persona in accepting that i mean as an art uh, an artist that had some popularity was princess nokia who would always talk in this kind of way of a sort of accepting kind of the commercialization of what she was doing it's like i need to get paid 
And it's like, I mean, an artist wouldn't talk about getting paid 30 years ago. They would talk about writing music. And like, it was a different, like our, the problem is, is the extent to which that getting paid floats to the surface and overtake so much of kind of what you might do and how you might actually act. And you had said before, like you're getting to hear a lot of other people that you wouldn't normally hear. That's a positive outfit. But I could also say I'm probably hearing a lot of people I shouldn't hear and shouldn't be heard. And so like there's a, it's kind of like, you know, there's a negative side of it where everybody who has sort of some basic graphic design skills is suddenly going to start like, you know, inundating me with bad gifts that they're going to say is worth whatever is that there are a lot it feeds a lot of that kind of process the good news is that it always cycles because culture corrects itself you know there's a subculture to this nft phenomenon right now that's sort of going and i would say there's a lot of sort of trying to unplug from these systems altogether you know there's a way of sort of saying the technology of everything is kind of like you know, is really damaging kind of the creative integrity. And so finding ways to sort of disconnect from that is another sort of subculture that you might see happening. We are desperate for the disconnection at, at times. <laughs> um, you know, I want to talk about cities, you know, something that previously to this this past year, meaning not just 2021, but 2020 is, is something we would have done in person kind of sharing a couple of glasses of something, right? And mm -hmm. haven't had the opportunity to to do that. But we're heading into some sort of imaginary post-pandemic life. And I frame it that way because I think there's a real hard line between the reality of where we are and where people are imagining we can be just because we're just tired and frustrated. Mm -hmm. Like there's been no policy, no imagination, no very few things that I could point to that are tangibly different, but we're over, right? Like New York city is ready to reopen, right? Even as, <laughs> as numbers are higher than at this same time last year when we were shutting down. So again, a little bit of editorial there, but I want to get your notions of how are you imagining or reimagining our post-pandemic life, you know, to build something that is resilient, that is not just packaging old ideas under new language yeah. or not even yeah. sometimes new language, right? It's a, kind of a big question in the time that we have, but I know cities are near and dear to yeah. both our hearts. And I know you would have some kind of thoughts on this. Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, it, I think, you know, it, I, it does feel very much like a Robert Moses moment. And for those that don't know who Robert Moses is, is he's the notorious urban planner that sort of created kind of a design kind of framework for the dominance of automobiles in the way in which cities were planned and has had a real impact on New York City as a whole. And, you know, also, you know, when you talk about Robert Moses, you end up inevitably hearing about Jane Jacobs, who was sort of the nemesis of, of Robert Moses to speak for those cities that were truly livable and walkable places. The heat brings sort of fighting for that humanness. The problem is, is that a lot of that kind of Jane Jacobness, I think over the last 10 years in the rise of cities has gotten marketed and diluted. And we never thought we would be at a crisis moment with the pandemic where we really do have to say, like, what is the sustainability of cities? So we've seen a number of different indices develop. Like, you know, we've gone from smart cities. And when you sort of hear these terms, you always say, like, well, who gets to say what the future is when you say what a smart city is? Well, that's sort of, you know, the tech companies are going to tell us how our city is going to be. And then we started hearing something about livable cities which is very interesting, but it's also very vague. And I don't kind of, and it, it's, you know, and I've done some talks on concepts of livability, but it's so hard to define. And it ends up having to do with the thing that sort of happens on its own. And then you now have 15 minute cities, which is sort of now getting used in, you know, if you want to know the, what people think the future is, it's being used in the emerging mayoral election in New York City. And you see some of the candidates referring to these 15-minute cities, or they have a certain urban planning kind of language to that. The problem is, is that I don't, you know, don't believe what people say, believe what they'll actually do in policymaking. 
I have, you know, somebody I know who's involved in New York City, New York State politics, who speaks out really great voice for the city. And he really cares about kind of the, you know, the livability and walkability of cities. But then just last week, he was sharing and celebrating the fact that Tesla has taxis that are being put rolled out in New York City. So how does Tesla taxis fit into a sustainable future? I would argue that, you know, a lot of what we've seen in terms of cars over the last 15 years in New York City has created a crisis. And, you know, we have sort of, we're in denial of the kind of planning that we actually have to do. We're not listening to the right people. Those are the kinds of issues. So I would say like to start is to try and get a better index is to say like, and say, what are we actually striving for? And when you say 15-minute city, don't say 15-minute city, say that you're really pro-public transportation and that you're really, you want it to work for everybody. And go to neighborhoods that have, go to food desert neighborhoods and tell me how you're going to change policy to actually fix that. And it's so funny you mentioned cars because I've driven more this past year than probably in the, no exaggeration, the 15 years I had prior largely because of the, well, really only because of the pandemic. I have not been in a New York City subway since March 8th of 2020. And Mm -hmm. everyone who knows me knows that I am a proponent of an active user of public transportation. I don't take cabs. I barely use Ubers and Lyfts unless real situations or I'm in a city where that's just the only alternative. I'm a 100% proponent of public transportation. And I think one of the challenges that we're going to have coming out of this is dealing with a public transportation, and I'm just speak for New York, which has been underfunded for 60, 70 years, right? So Robert Moses, to reference him again, literally underfunded New York City public transportation for decades, right? relative to its contribution to the system. Now you have a pandemic and and the biggest thing I've heard about the subway in particular is safety. Mm-hmm. Since I haven't heard people this concerned about safety in the subway since the 80s, mm-hmm. which is a, a, a stark departure from where I think New York City subways were, were heading. And yet we have not had any conversation around beyond surveillance and police, which are definitely not the answer um, to making these places safe, physically safe and safe also from just the new normal of pandemic. Right. Mm -hmm. So again, a a little bit of editorializing there on, on my side, but you know, how do we, have these conversations that are by their nature complex when it seems like we don't, we're unwilling to even to think about the things that matter the most. Like when you talk Mm -hmm. about Tesla cabs, one of the things that I remark on when I'm driving around is delivery. If Mm -hmm. there's, I mean, the streets are impassable with Amazon trucks, UPS, Mm -hmm. US Postal Service, FedEx, and this is every day. Like you don't. Yeah, well, the, 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 yeah, the Amazon story in cities is kind of a you know it's this little the little secret that has sort of slipped through and hasn't reached policy, which is Amazon uses up city streets as a space to actually sort packages for last mile delivery. And so, if I don't know if you've noticed this, but like there are trucks. And you see whole portions of pavement taken up by Amazon delivery people who are sorting that out for third party kind of delivery that is going from that particular company. And so it's kind of like they didn't pay for that. So when I think of my living in that neighborhood, it's like I, you know, I'm I'm paying taxes and I expect to be able to walk on my street or whatever, but it's like somebody else made a decision that Amazon could basically block that. And sometimes they take over bike lanes, which is really quite often they take over bike lanes. And so like this idea of bicycles, you know, sort of cycle friendly cities and so forth. It's like, well, you know, as long as it doesn't get in way of my Uber Eats order or whatever or something, you know, that kind of thing is sort of what we haven't really 
thought about. There's a lot of tensions. And I would go back to sort of part of your question, which is we need to start listening to the right people. Because the question is, is that we tend to listen to people who aren't really core to the really core to actually a sustainable way of designing better cities. We tend to listen to people who are who would take an Uber or something like that. Um, and so how you make public transportation work is that you listen to the right people and you design its use and you cultivate its use. And so you understand how its use has changed. Because one of the things about public transportation people forget is it's used differently because we have far less nine to five workers than we ever did. So there's a different pattern to how people are living in cities and so forth. Those transportation systems haven't kept up with the changes in behavior of people who live within these cities. So there's a need for an update and start listening to outlying neighborhoods. I would definitely say don't get enough voice and could really be great in terms of feeding kind of innovation for how you know cities develop transportation is at the core of, of the life and breadth of, of a city you know if everybody went around in cars it would break down and people would leave so you have to sort of remember that part of it yeah that's um, a critical critical piece we have to start listening to other folks and you know I think by the time this airs, you know, we'll be a little closer to the primary, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not overly hopeful. <laughs> let's, let's put it that way. You know, I'm, I'm seeing just a, a you know, I, I was talking to a, another great, great friend and, and someone who's also been on the show a few times, um, Lena Sarvastava. And she, we, I was saying to her just over a message was, you know, I don't know. I, I think this is going to be like the lowest primary turnout in New York City history. Like that's, oh, wow. that's what I'm betting on. Cause I, I feel like no one know, even knows this is coming up. Like this, mm-hmm. this, it seems like as I move around in the world, the idea that we're going to have a new mayor is shocking to people. You know, I mean, it, it could just maybe be my little bubble isn't wide enough, but I, I read a lot of news and watch a lot of things. And I don't know. I, I just feel like it's not something that's being really seriously discussed and, Maybe that will change in the upcoming weeks, but I don't know. I feel like New York is in a little bit of stasis and people haven't really woken up to the fact that we're going <laughs> to have this election. In, 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 well, we, in well, we, we do. Well, we did have the, you know, the challenge of, I mean, the election in November ended up dragging on. And if you can picture what that did emotionally to people in isolation, it's sort of this wearing down of our political public engagement, our our relationship to politics has been really eroded by those kinds of experiences. And so like, you know, you have another election, people start going, please, you know, at least, at least we're not dealing with anybody like that or something. And it's, we're not good, but it's sort of like, you know, and they hope for the, they're exhausted. I would say there's this exhaustion, which is a shame and you can't have good cities to go back to that, which is you can't have great cities without great public engagement. So if we, if we let that dull, we won't have a very good city. So we have to bring that back to life. 100%. I I think exhaustion, being tired, like this come up in so many different conversations I've had, just people are really, really stretched. Yeah. emotionally and psychologically stretched. And it's it's very hard to, like you said, engage. But, you know, this is when we need engagement the most, right? Because I think if we if we take our, our eyes off off the ball, they're not that great actors out there, despite the fact we, we might have gotten rid of one of the worst actors. So let's leave it there because, you know, you and I <laughs> can start to pretend that we ain't recording. Um, okay. <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm going to get to Off the Dome and just like three little quick questions. So what is the worst advice you've ever received? The worst advice? Oh, that is really tough. I would say play by the rules is probably when I was early in my my career is that it's not something I'm particularly good at. So it was easy for me to not do that, but it was to kind of sort of listen to the bad ideas and allow them and then wait for your time is what what it was. So I would probably say that. As a designer, someone who thinks deeply about these topics, what is one of your most important tools or resources? Oh, well, you know, the core of the work that we do centers around language. And so when we are doing any work, it's about 
understanding how people use words and kind of what the implicit meaning of those words. So I'm a big fan of reading the dictionary and also reading any things that are connected to, I use these kind of tools with my students and helping them understand how to read beyond what the explicit meaning of a word is and recognize sort of what else is going on. So dictionaries and any sort of tools around words is very important to me. And final one on this note, if you can collaborate with anyone past or present on a project, you know, who would that person or maybe persons, I'll allow you two if you have two, but you know, you could give me one, who would that person be? Well, I mean, it's, I would say we did some work with the writings of Buckminster Fuller. And I think in terms of somebody who is truly kind of inspirational in thinking, uh, sort of structuring our thinking, Buckminster Fuller is definitely somebody who I could, I would be very excited in terms of, we do research around developing tools around language and a lot of what Buckminster Fuller has done, it's just that that level of brilliance would be amazing to just be able to be around a little bit. You definitely can't go wrong with Bucky. He's a, yeah. <laughs> a great a great source to, to kind of highlight. That's you know, great. I want to get us into the drop and I have a drop and I'm sure you have one too. So do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? Well, maybe I should go go first in case you have the same drop as me or if I have my, if I, my drop is... <laughs> no, go I'm for scared it. we'll have the same. Well, you know, the thing that's hit me recently is watching um, the film Nomadland. And for you know a variety of other reasons, it's kind of interesting because you know you watch something like that and it kind of really reveals a lot of kind of the problems that we currently have. But it also, for somebody who's studied film a lot, it reminds me a lot of films from the 1930s. And it takes you back, and I would recommend anybody to go and watch old 1930s Depression-era films because it's the same kind of thing that's going on, this kind of like sort of bringing to the surface kind of this sense of inequality, uh, inequity, um, and sort of broken kind of relationships between people and what they need to do to live. You know, it's that kind of existential kind of question. So, you know, it's a bit tough to watch. But it really did impact. It really had a huge impact on me. Yeah, you know, I got to agree with you. I love the film. I, I recommend it myself. And actually, it was my drop on a recording I did two weeks ago. So listeners, by the time they would have listened to this, they would have heard us mm -hmm. talking about No Man Land already, right? So mm -hmm. it's a great film for many of the reasons that you highlighted. And I think we got to... Um, that's another worthy conversation to have just about that, that movie. Because I, I found myself thinking about it for days and days afterward. So big shout out to Nomadland. That topic of labor and like, you know, yeah. really having it sort of understand kind of where we are in that. And at a point of which the nature of work is transitioning, we don't really have an answer and understanding of what people will do and how they will live in the future quite yet. And so it's really kind of, it's tough to watch, but it's that ambiguity can be very helpful to help us recenter ourselves. I agree with that. And, and, you know, we started this conversation talking about subcultures and if within that movie, you, you are put into several subcultures and, and perhaps one of the more overarching one is that of the precarious nature that we are all mm. living in to some extent. <laughs> so exactly. maybe our, our new big, organizing subculture is precariousness. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my drop is a little bit more fun, even though HBO Max is a terrible interface. I've mm. been using it <laughs> to jump into the DC animated space, which is the one thing that DC has gotten quite right relative to its live actions, which are pretty uniformly bad. Mm -hmm. And I've been really enjoying Harley Quinn, which has two seasons, again, animated, so not the live action movie, which is actually very good. Mm -hmm. But the animated Harley Quinn is really very funny, very focusing on a female character, but despite the fact that she's the so-called villain, is quite illuminating on a, on a number of topics, you know, in a funny way mm -hmm. about women's empowerment, how they fit into this fictional world of superheroes and supervillains and sidekicks and just a whole bunch of really funny stuff mm. that as I'm watching it, I'm like, I'm the 
it's made having HBO Max and dealing with their terrible interface worth it because it's quite <laughs> quite entertaining. So I would recommend folks that are kind of into that that genre take a look at Harley Quinn animated and and have a few laughs. It's a really really good show. Awesome. So we are done. It's been a, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and I. I can't thank you enough for coming back on the deep dive and spending this time with me. It's been really great. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. It's always great talking to you, Tim. Thank you. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.